When I was a little kid, I remember one time walking up to the parking lot from a day at the beach, and I walked past a catering truck. The guy in the truck called out, hey, do you want a hamburger? I kind of looked around, make sure he's looking at me, and like, sure, yeah, I'll take a hamburger. So he stuck his hand out and had a, a burger in a little basket, and he said, you want some fries? Sure, yeah, I'll take some fries. How about a, how about a drink? Yeah, I'll have, I'll have a drink. And so he gave me all this food, and I kind of went on my way and was enjoying the burger, and I was thinking, man, I got to keep my eye out for these trucks. They're going around handing out burgers. And I kind of, I remember it was quite a while where I went through life thinking that these people drove around handing out hamburgers. What, of course, you probably realize is uh, what I realized. I don't know why the guy gave me a free burger. Maybe he had some leftovers. Maybe he thought I was part of an event. But you know, that's not the way it works, right? You don't just get a free lunch. You don't just get free food. But, but from my perspective and in my world, I, my encounter with the catering truck was not according to the rules, but according to an exception, and so my, my perception of the whole uh, way things operated was now governed by the exception. I just sort of concluded that uh, anytime I saw a truck, I could walk up and get a free burger. Well, you can imagine uh, a number of years later, whenever I actually had the opportunity to do that, I walked up and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take a burger and a, a fries. He said, well, that'll be, you know, X number of dollars. I was like, whoa, wait, I wasn't expecting that. I, was, I think I was a little offended, in fact, whenever he was asking me for all of that. I formulated this whole conception of all these things based on an exception. Really, in a way, that that illustrates the, the way a lot of people think about God. Their experience with God, the way they formulate their view of God, is based, whether they realize it or not, it is based primarily on exceptions, not on the rule. Or to put it in more theological terms, their experience with God is based more on His mercy than on His law. Because the reality is, so much of their experience in life has been governed by or overseen by God's mercy. So much of their experience within life and with God is that they don't get immediately punished when they do things wrong. They don't get immediately chastised or punished when they sin. So much of their experience is based on God being patient, with God being kind, with God overlooking sin. And so they formulate a view of God based off that experience. They sin, they violate His law, they violate either their conscience or whatever it might be, they, whatever understanding they have of right and wrong, and when they get away with it, when there are no immediate penalties or consequences, they get used to things working that way, they begin to think that things are supposed to work that way, and they go on many times, more and more just assuming, that is if they even believe in God, that, God, that because God didn't do anything to them in the past, God will not do anything to them in the future. There is a reality that God is merciful. In fact, He's full of mercy. Exodus 34, God says of Himself, He calls Himself the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This was a cherished verse among Israelites. As a matter of fact, it's quoted even in a couple of Psalms, Psalm 86, Psalm 145. This was something that they latched onto, something they put into their music, something they sang about. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And they would sing this and they would repeat this. And this is the way they thought about God. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's gracious. Moses even declared to them whenever they were receiving the covenant, when they were receiving his law at Mount Sinai, 
He says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to you. And so the Jews in particular, they heard all these verses, and like so many people today, they just sort of assumed God's mercy would always be the rule. He had been merciful to them over and over and over again. But like so many people today, what they failed to grasp is that while God is merciful, it is still the exception and not the rule. The rule first laid out in the Garden of Eden by which God operates, He gave to Adam and Eve that in the day that you sin, you will surely die. In the day that you sin, you will surely die. That's the rule. You sin today, you deserve to die today. If that doesn't happen, if God makes an exception, it's because he's merciful, but it's not the rule. Of course, Adam and Eve did eventually sin. They did not immediately receive the full penalty of that sin. God was merciful from the very beginning, even as he is today. And while God could have justifiably struck them down dead, while he could have justifiably completely eliminated all creation, he, he allowed them to remain alive, albeit in a fallen state, And now throughout all history, God has shown mercy to men and women over and over again. The Lord makes the rain to fall on the good and the bad. The Lord grants blessing to the just and the unjust. He gives us the pleasures of the food we eat and the drink by which we quench our thirst. He gives us the joys of of marriage and family and children. He gives us the blessing of watching a, a sunset on a cool evening and enjoying all the good graces of life. He gives us the surrounding of friends along the way in the journey. God does all of this, and in doing that, in every way, God is demonstrating His goodness. But throughout history, if there were ever a people who were particularly favored and had been shown particular mercy, it was Israel. On top of all those sort of common graces and common mercies that you and I experienced, they had even more. God had been patient with them. You remember He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Even within days of that, though, they rebelled against Him. And although they so quickly turned away from them, from him, he still was faithful to them as a nation. He brought them into the promised land. In, in turn, they immediately turned away from him again and turned to worship other gods. And yet still he waited and he waited for centuries. He waited for them to come around. And when they finally would not come around after Eight centuries, seven, eight centuries, he took them into captivity and yet still didn't give up on them. He didn't cast them off forever. He brought them back out of captivity, brought them back into their land, continued to work with them. But in the midst of all this kindness, in the midst of all this extended patience and grace, they mistook his mercy as some sort of rule, some sort of standard. That because God had been merciful in the past, this was his basic approach, he would always, always overlook their sin. But Paul's been trying to correct that presumption in Romans. In Romans chapter 2, he's written an entire chapter trying to correct That way of thinking within Israel. Even remember back in chapter 2 verse 4. He warned them. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In other words all this mercy that you've been shown. All this kindness. All this forbearance throughout life. It was intended for you to get a certain message to be brought to a place of repentance. And what you've done is you have presumed 
that because you haven't faced the worst consequences of all these things, you have presumed upon that grace and upon that kindness. Israel had begun to presume on the forbearance and patience of God. They had ignored the fact that while they were experiencing these occasional blessings, sometimes sustained blessings in their life, that they still had not repented. In fact, in verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul says that they had developed a hard and impenitent heart and were storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. Then in spite of all the grace and, and mercy God had been extending to them, he said, there is coming a day you are storing away, you're, you're sort of holding up this amount of wrath that's going to be poured out on you in the end. Although there are not immediate consequences, there are consequences, in other words. So they, not seeing themselves as sinful, not seeing themselves as deserving God's wrath, their hearts were hardened And because they didn't see themselves as particularly in need of repentance, particularly sinful, they didn't recognize just how merciful and patient God had been. Like so many in the world today, they just saw themselves as deserving God's goodness. They saw themselves as deserving God's kindness. People like this, they don't spend their days saying, you know, Lord, thank you for another day. Thank you for another breath. Thank you that while at this point in my life, I should have lost my reputation, I should have lost my family, I should have lost all my friends. In fact, I should have even lost any relationship with you. Well, they don't go through their life saying, God, thank you, because I don't deserve anything that I have. Thank you for yet another day, yet another meal, yet a house over my head, or whatever it might be. That's not the way they spend their life. That's not the way they pray each morning when they get up. These people just presume it all. They just sort of take it all for granted. They just sort of assume that it ought to come to them. And so when bad things happen or when when things don't go their way or when they lose their job or lose their house or lose a loved one or whatever it might be, their immediate reaction is that somehow they're not getting what they deserve at that point because they deserve everything or at least they've earned it because they're basically, basically good. That attitude has infiltrated, of course, even the evangelical church that has built an entire existence around this kind of self-love. Sermons, messages, books, focus on self-image, self-esteem, self-worth, self-value. Gathering people uh, week after week, talking to them, if at all, about sin. But the sin is always in relation to how it might have a negative impact on your happiness. Very little discussion of how it would have an impact on God or your relationship with God. It's all built on this sense of presumption that you deserve God's kindness. And in fact, you deserve more than what you're getting. That you have to somehow figure out how to tap into even more. That you're... You, it's no, no longer the sense that you just deserve to die, that you're a corrupt sinner that you have no inherent worth before God, the message is all bent on a, on a man-centered rather than a God-centered universe. The whole focus, as I said, of sin is how it affects you rather than how it affects God and how it might potentially bring negative consequences to your happiness, your self-esteem. Now, all of this was very similar to where Israel was in Paul's day. The whole focus of their spiritual life was themselves. They knew that sin may bring negative consequences into their life, but they didn't entertain the idea that it really would bring utter rejection by God one day. And so what Paul has done is is he has spent most of chapter 2 trying to explain to them not the exception 
but the rule. Trying to get them to understand that while God has been kind and has been gracious to you, that you need to realize that behind all that kindness and grace, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. In fact, he says in the very next verse, in verse 6, because he will render to each one according to his works. The implication is he's not doing that right now. He's not giving you everything you deserve right now. He's not giving you the wrath and the fury and the judgment right now. He's being kind and he's being gracious. But when it comes to the end, he will govern by the rule, not by the exception. God will judge them on their works according, as he goes on to say, according to what they know. So some who have no copy of God's word, no copy of the law, they'll be judged on, based on what they inherently know in their conscience according to the image of God within them. He, they will be judged based on that sense of right and wrong that's inherent to them. For those who have the word of God and have the explicit testimonies of God, there will be a stricter judgment. And throughout that chapter, Paul just pounds that truth over and over again, demonstrating that despite all of Israel's privileges, they continually disobeyed and dishonor God by not keeping His law. And what it ultimately revealed is that even while you can be religious on the outside, you can still be very sinful on the inside. And when it comes time for judgment, God is going to examine both. He's going to demand outward obedience in every way. And he's going to demand inward purity in every way. Of course, no one can meet that standard. No one can keep the law perfectly. And even if they could come close to some perfection on the outside, they can't keep their heart perfectly. And so the bottom line is every person, even the Jew who had all these mercies of God in their life, every person will stand condemned before God on the day of judgment. Well, that leads to a question that opens up chapter 3. A question that would have been in the minds of people who know their Bible. If all this is true, if everything you're saying is true, Paul, what then is the advantage of the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Or just to sort of paraphrase, what is all that stuff in the Old Testament all about? What is all that state, all those statements about all these covenants and all these promises and all this mercy, what's all that stuff all about? What is the advantage Why does God even tell the story of the Jews? What what value is there supposed to be, in other words, in the unique privileges that the Lord gave to the Jews? If they're condemned right along with everyone else, what's all this really all about? And the question launches something of a debate that Paul presents in the first eight verses of this chapter, sort of hypothetical debate that he engages with because it was probably a debate that he had had at various times when he went around the Roman Empire preaching the gospel in all the synagogues and engaging with Jews here and there and roundabout. He would discuss the gospel. He would no doubt engage in these kinds of debates. And in this sort of debate style, Paul anticipates the very responses that are going to come from people, from Jews in particular, who had presumed upon the mercy of God and would have been shocked by the notion that they stood under the condemnation of God just like everyone else. And so Paul is confronting their mistaken ideas about God, about His mercy, about His promises, about His judgment, about all the obligations and privileges that Israel has. He is confronting them about all these things. And really, all these false ideas can, can be 
dealt with or summarized in three assumptions that Paul wants to address in this passage. Three assumptions that he confronts in these verses. The first one given to us in verses 1 and 2 is the assumption that God's promises of mercy cancel out his warnings of judgment. This was the assumption that they made. They assumed that all the things they read about God's promises of mercy just sort of did away with all of the warnings about his judgment. And so when a Jew thought about the scripture, they primarily focused on the promises or what we sometimes call the covenants. They knew the Old Testament certainly contained warnings, but they easily overlooked those things because what they considered to be primary were the covenants of promise. Well, most likely this is primarily what they would have believed Paul was overlooking. And when he talked about them being judged right along with everyone else, they most likely would have accused him of forgetting these promises. And when Paul poses the question in verse 1, what is the advantage of the Jew then? His emphatic response is, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He doesn't say given. They were entrusted. Epituthesan. It is a, a passive uh, sense of the word pistuo, to believe, to be trusted. They, they were given it. They were entrusted with it. They were given a responsibility, a responsibility to believe it, a responsibility to respond to it, a responsibility to keep it. Being entrusted with the Word of God was a distinct privilege, but it also became an indictment against them. They had all kinds of advantages, of course. Paul, in fact, will come back and address this Subject again in chapter 9, and he'll talk about all of the advantages that they had received. Adoption by God, glory in their temple, covenants, temple worship, promises, patriarchs, ultimately the Messiah coming from their own nation. They had all kinds of privileges, but chief among them all, or first of all, or at the first, as Paul says right here, was the fact that while no one else had the word of God, they had it. They had a clear message from God. All of those advantages, all of them, and especially the Word of God, was at one time a privilege, but at the same time an indictment. Because they had been entrusted, given a responsibility, having heard the Word. The clear declaration of God's law, the clear declaration of his expectations. And the tragedy is, is that even with the very clear statement of what God demands in their life, most Jews still failed to get it. They failed to understand what it was all about. They failed to understand the Bible. They failed to understand what they read. Jesus confronted them on this, you remember, on a number of occasions. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they who bear witness of me. He was confronting because they didn't believe him. And he was like, you got the scriptures, you're reading them, you're searching them, and you don't even understand them. You're, you're focusing on all these things that you think promise you eternal life, but you miss the central point. He says a little bit later in that same chapter, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. It is Moses on whom you've set your hope. And if you'd believe Moses, he said, you would have believed me because my message is the same. So here you are. You've set your hope, you think, on the law. You've set your hope, you think, on this scripture. You set your hope on this Old Testament and you think that it's going to be your rescue, when in fact, it's going to be your accusation. It's going to be the thing that is used against you on the day of judgment. And what Jesus told them is that you have the Bible, but you totally missed it. 
He says in Mark 7, you have voided the word of God by replacing it with the commandments again of men. So they muted the word by selectively studying it and setting over it a layer of human tradition. And so instead of listening to what the scripture really was saying with warnings and accusations and all that and recognizing their guilt and recognizing where they stood, they made it into a sort of rule book in which they picked and chose certain rules. And if you kept them well enough, it would result in promise of blessing and promise of eternal life. But they ignored, for the most part, all the sections that declared their guilt. John seven nineteen has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Mark 12, Jesus rebukes them again. You do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. So over and over again, Christ would tell them this. You fail to get the message of scripture, even though it has been given to you so clearly. You have every reason to listen to it and hear its judgment and recognize your guilt and be found uh, in need of a savior. And yet you didn't do any of that. You just latched on to the promises And downplayed and ignored all the warnings, kind of like all the graduation gifts that are being given out by now. If you're a graduate these days, you've probably received a dozen copies of God's little book of promises. But I would bet you haven't received the first copy of God's little book of accusations. Right? I mean, that's the way people want to deal with the Bible. They just want to pull out the promises of blessing. They just want to pull out the promises of goodness. But they want to pass over all the accusations. They want to ignore all the warnings. They don't want to hear all the stuff about judgment. And this is the way Israel read the Bible. And this is the way people read the Bible today. They just sort of think that they can skim across the top to all the promises of eternal life and blessing and never have to deal with all the stuff about their guilt and their shame. As if one just canceled out the other, as if the exception now has become the rule. Jews had an advantage for sure. They had been entrusted with this scripture, given the scripture, but they were given it as an obligation, a responsibility, a gift that came with a call and a demand for obedience. And you can't just assume that when you open the Bible, you can't just assume that you will receive all the blessings, but not ever have to deal with the warnings. Secondly, Paul confronts their assumption that God is responsible for their disbelief. He confronts their assumption that it is God who is responsible for their disbelief. The reality is that when God had given his word, some, in fact, many, Paul is using a very modest term there, many, probably most, did not believe. The ESV Bible has it, some were not faithful, but it basically is the word for believing in a negative form. So it probably should be translated disbelieve. Some disbelieved or some did not believe. They didn't understand, they didn't follow, they didn't believe the commands that were given. But that doesn't mean that somehow God had failed. It doesn't mean that somehow his word had failed or somehow he wasn't clear enough or whatever it might be. Or another way to state it is when God gives all those statements about wanting to be merciful and wanting to save and wanting to give eternal life. And along with that, all those warnings about judging and condemning. Does the failure of people to respond to the warnings nullify the fact that God really wants to save? Of course not. When God says he wants to give us eternal life and then we in turn rebel against him and he judges us for it, 
does it mean that God really doesn't want to give us eternal life? Of course not. As Paul states it in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does the fact that so many do not believe and therefore will be found before God under condemnation, does that mean that God therefore does not really want to be merciful? Or to put it another way, when God doesn't save everyone because they refused to believe Him, does it mean that God isn't really merciful? Does it mean that His promises of salvation are just empty words? Absolutely not. That's Paul's word. You know, by no means, he says in verse 4, may it never be. Absolutely not. This is the way some people, though, would have responded to what Paul is saying here, especially the Jews. They would say, well, Paul, the God that I've heard of has always been a God who wanted to save Israel. The God I've heard of has always been a God who wouldn't judge us. The God I've heard of has always been a God who had chosen Israel and wanted Israel to be his people. And Paul is responding, saying, look, yes, if that, if that has been God's stated purpose in all of this, if God gave you his word and you didn't believe his word, your unbelief doesn't mean that God never wanted to save you to begin with. For Jews in particular, if God gave you a covenant and you failed to keep it, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want to keep his covenant. You might say, well, that's it's not fair of God. Maybe his standard was too high or maybe it wasn't clear enough in his word or whatever. The bottom line is he's our maker. He's our creator. He is the one who gets to establish the rules. That's Paul's point, by the way, in verse 5. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. What that means is even if every single human being agreed together, As difficult as that would be, if every single human being on the face of the earth all came to exactly the same conclusion about God or about His Word or about whatever, if they came to the same conclusion that God is unfair, that God is unright, even if we all agreed on a single point against God, Even if we all agreed that somehow he misled us or let us down or whatever, you know what? We would all be wrong. Every one of us would be wrong. This is so far from most people's view of God. They feel like they have some standing by which to lecture God. Some place by which they can accuse him or judge him by the way he conducts the world. If God does, in fact, treat them like rebels and sinners. If they do, in fact, face some of the consequences of their rebellion against him. If God does decide at some moment to not be merciful to them. And if they come down with some horrifying experience from this fallen and corrupted world, or even if they come down with some illness, or if they get cancer, or if they lose a loved one, or if they lose a spouse, or even a child somehow dies, or they feel like all of this stuff, they immediately respond as if they have a right to get angry with God. As if somehow that is excusable. And you hear people talk about it and use that language or even hear sometimes hear sermons about it, about, about how to be angry with God, how it's all okay if you're angry with God. As if somehow that's your place to do that. But what Paul is saying is you can accuse God all you want. You can say all these things you want. And you can get a lot of people to agree with you. And guess what? You're all wrong. 
Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God always be true. He will always be true in everything. He'll always be right and you will always be wrong when you're against him. And then he quotes, interestingly, from an Old Testament passage, which comes out of Psalm 51, which is a great psalm, the great psalm of repentance, perhaps the greatest passage in all of Scripture on the theme of repentance. And in that passage, David wrote, after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And he had been caught in this adultery and he was condemned. And because of all that, God, in judgment, declared that he was going to take the life of the child who would be born to Bathsheba from that sinful affair. God was going to take the life of David's baby. When the child was born, the scripture says, God afflicted him. Afflicted the child born to Bathsheba from David and he became sick. And the book of Samuel says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. He fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. The servants were afraid to tell David. They, they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He, what may he do to himself? In other words, they thought, well, this is how he responded when the child was living. I mean, he might be utterly distraught if he finds out the child is dead. But David overheard him whispering. He figured out that the baby must have died. And so he arose and bathed himself and clothed himself. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. His servants didn't understand it like a lot of people wouldn't understand it today. Because when the child was alive, he was distraught and fasted and cried and wept. But when the child died, he comforted himself and sought comfort in God. David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Who knows whether or not he would make an exception this time. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? I can, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not come to me. In other words, he says, look, I know God in his grace saves these little ones for eternity. And so I can take comfort in the fact of God's mercy over that little child. And one day I can join him in eternity. But, but for now in this life, there's nothing I can do about this. I mean, God's the one that makes the rules. Was David insensitive? Did he not love? Did he not care for his child? Of course not. He loved him immensely. That's why he grieved so much when he was sick. But when he died, David didn't blame or accuse God for all the negativity. He didn't accuse God of not being merciful because he knew that God was fully in his right to be merciful or not to be merciful. David, in other words, had a theology that ultimately helped him to cope with the painful loss of his child. And you hear that theology come out in Psalm 51 after Nathan confronts David and David is convicted about his sin. He declares, against you, O Lord, and you only or you mainly have I sinned. In other words, uh, I can certainly sin against other people, but the main issue is I sinned against you. Therefore, and Paul quotes this passage right here. You will be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. 
Paul, uh, when God speaks against me, or he's saying to God, God, when you speak to, against me, you're always right. God, when you bring negative consequences into my life, you are always right. When you judge, I have nothing, nothing to say. You know, this is the essence. This is the essence of repentance and faith. John Calvin called this the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. The primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. This is at the core of genuine faith. It is the absolute affirmation that God is always, always right. Even when I may disagree with Him. I have no right to. I can't be angry with God. I have no place to challenge God. I can't accuse God. He's always right when he speaks. People, people just can't grasp that. This is not the God they have heard about in all of their you know, children's storybooks. This isn't the God that they have heard about from their pulpits or read about in their Christian books. And yet we're reminded here that popular theology is often not true theology. Although everyone might agree against the testimony of God's word, let every man be a liar, but God will always be true. Every person in the world may agree on what they think God is supposed to do or how God is supposed to act in their mind. They might all get together and decide that God is supposed to be loving and therefore he's not supposed to condemn anyone. They might all get together and just decide that God can't be so cruel. And so if negative consequences come into your life, you deserve better. They might all say that. You might get all your friends together to affirm that. But guess what? They're liars. Because God is true. And He'll never be accused. And if all of them decide to disbelieve and all of them decide to reject the God of the Bible because they resent His authority and they resent His prerogative and they resent His judgment and they resent all this stuff, they'll all be proved to be wrong. And God will be proved in the end to be true. If God chooses to punish every one of them, and condemn every one of them because they didn't believe. He's not responsible for their unbelief. And he cannot be accused of not being merciful. It's not his fault. It's yours. That leads finally to a third assumption that Paul confronts here. The assumption that God should overlook sin. In order to prove his mercy. God should overlook sin in order to prove his mercy. Verse 5. But if our righteousness serves to prove or serves to show the righteousness of God. What do we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Again, this might have been the objection of some Jews. Yes, we are imperfect. Yes, we are sinful. We are unrighteous. But if it means... If it just becomes, I should say, a means of, of showing the mercy and the righteousness of God, I mean, it's kind of a way of God, making God look better. I mean, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't He be a better God if He just sort of overlooked all of our sins? Wouldn't that make Him look better? If He's really interested in demonstrating His righteousness, He'd save us. He wouldn't condemn us. Kind of like people today, if God really was loving He would prove it by saving everyone. But as Paul says, to even say that in verse 5 is to speak as a mere human. I'm speaking like a man. I'm thinking with this man-centered, worldly kind of logic here. It is inferior. It is flawed. And that's why he says again in verse 6, by no means, certainly not. For then how could God judge the world? 
How could God still be considered faithful and reliable to judge all mankind if he's always setting aside the rules, if he's always bending the rules? If he himself has no respect for the law, how can he be the one entrusted with judging people by the law? If God didn't respect the law, he would be unqualified to administer it, unqualified to judge by it. It would be like like you giving the keys to your vehicle to someone and saying, look, I don't mind if other people use it, but only if they meet certain criteria. They need to obviously have a driver's license. They need to be uh, at least 30 years of age. I'd like it if they had at least 10 years of driving experience. I want them to make sure they have proper insurance. And on top of that, I want them to have enough money so that if anything happens to my car, they could easily pay for the repairs. So here, you can have the car and under those criteria, people can use it. And they turn around and promptly give the keys to a 14-year-old kid who goes out and wrecks it. You'd be upset, right? Because you would establish the laws and this person had no respect for the laws that have been established, they, they really weren't qualified to administer those laws. Because they didn't respect the laws. They didn't believe the laws or whatever it was. Well, when God gives the law, He gives the law because this is what He believes. This is what He knows is true and right and pure and blessed. Someone might respond, verse 7, yeah, but if... Through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? I mean, can't God sort of turn this around and make it really good for all of us just by being merciful? Shouldn't God just be happy to forgive me because it abounds to His glory? It makes Him look good, sort of proves how merciful He is. I mean, I really just want God to look good. It's essentially the same attitude as verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? Paul says, in fact, this is the way some people have slanderously charged him as teaching. And he says there at the end of verse 8, their condemnation is justified. You know why? Because they're really proving just how rebellious they are. They're not standing before God and saying, I have no right to be here. I have nothing to say to God. I am fully condemned. I am fully culpable. I am fully liable. I am fully guilty. They're not standing there demonstrating that they understand who he is, who they are, what the law is, what their obligation is. All they're really doing is trying to figure out another loophole so that they can go on out and pursue what they really want to pursue, which is their sin. But they get to lay all the blame over on God if He doesn't accommodate their sinful lifestyle. Paul says their condemnation is justified. They are proving by their, uh, by their uh, crooked logic, they are proving why it is right and just to condemn them. Listen, God has been gracious with you. You may not recognize it. You may go through life kind of just always focused on what you don't have and what you didn't get and maybe assuming in a sort of narcissistic, self-centered way that you deserve better, you deserve more, that God ought to be more kind to you, that He's better to other people than He is to you, or whatever it might be. You might go through life just thinking that all the time and not recognizing the abundant mercy that has been given to you. He has showered you with goodness more than you could have ever deserved. Maybe things have gone relatively well in your life. Maybe they haven't. But you can't assume from any of that that you will therefore be fine in the judgment. You can't assume that God is somehow obligated to you to show you mercy. You can't assume that because all of the exceptions to your sin have been 
sort of dictating your life that somehow on the day of judgment, God's going to throw out the rule book and just govern by the exceptions. It'll still be the same for you as it is for everyone else. Romans 2.6, He will render to you according to your deeds. And if you have sinned, your works will be condemned. And if you're standing there with nothing but your works, you'll be condemned. Of course, the good news that comes in the rest of Romans chapter 3, the rest of the book of Romans, is that while this is the state of every person who will ever be born in this world except for Christ, that it doesn't have to be the state in which we stand before God. Because while your works would condemn you, we are given by faith the works of Christ. We're given His righteousness. We're given His purity. We're given His life, which is deserving of all God's favor and all God's, all God's kindness. And our challenge to you today is that you recognize that God is ruling. God is sovereign over all of life. God makes the rules and He gets to govern just how He wants. But you know, even the fact that you're here today is a divine mercy. Even the fact that you gathered in this room with all these other people and heard from God's Word this message, whether you recognize it or not, God has been kind to you today. And He's given you a chance to hear the truth. And a chance to respond to it. And when we close in a word of prayer in just a moment and with a song, I'm going to be here. Our other leaders will be here. Our elders will be here. And you might have been convicted this morning that you've been one of those people who've just been rolling through life, just presuming on God's grace. But you've never repented. You've always sort of had a chip on your shoulder against God. You've never humbled yourself. You've never had genuine faith. I invite you to come find us. We would love to show you from Scripture how you can live the most blessed life, a life in fellowship with God, a life free of guilt and shame, and a life destined for eternal life because of what Christ has done for us. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed, as I said, with a word of prayer and with a song. Father, we're grateful, so grateful for your manifold blessings today. We could never even count them, certainly could never deserve them, and ought to be continually humbled by them. But Lord, we pray for those who have gone through life maybe thinking that there's something in them that deserves better, that hasn't gotten enough goodness, enough kindness from you. They presume on your kindness. Lord, we pray that you'd open their eyes today, that you'd humble their hearts, that before you, they would understand that you'll always be true and they'll be found to be the ones in error, the ones who are living according to lies. We pray, Lord, that you'd open their eyes, grant them faith and repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.